Be ready. That's, uh, I ripped the title of my sermon off of that song, so I'm just, just, just letting you all know that. I do really like that kids' album, though. If you are looking for a good kids' album that doesn't make you want to pull your hair out after listening to it for more than one time, that's a really good one. Matthew 25. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30 this morning. Uh, so in way of review, just, just for a minute, uh, last week we talked about uh, how from generation to generation, from the day of Christ to 2019, followers of Christ are called to wait well. To not just wait, but to wait well. And that was what we talked about last week. Uh, I quoted Mary Poppins to you guys, um, and, and it was, she said, which I love, she said, we're on the brink of an adventure, children. Don't spoil it with too many questions. Okay, um, waiting for Christ to come back, man, it's an adventure, isn't it? I, I realize that sometimes the stage of life, the season that we're in, we probably wouldn't describe it, what we're going through as an adventure. That may not be the word that we use, um, and yet that's, that's what it is. On this adventure, we ought to be doing the things that Christ has called us to do. And in your notes, you can see uh, we condensed them down to these four things last week. It was very simple. Love God with everything you have. Love others as yourself. Make disciples of all nations and be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So Matthew 25, our text for today, gives us more examples of what it means to wait well and not wait well for Jesus' return. So let's get into the text. We will read it, and then we will ask God's blessing on it. Chapter 25 of Matthew, verses 1 through 30. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other versions came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had only received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And I lost my spot. Verse 19. 
Uh, Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. And gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. And give it to him who has the ten talents for everyone, for to everyone who has, let me start that verse 29 over. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord illuminate your word to us our hearts father begin darkened and over time um, even as your children lord sin begins to darken our understanding of scripture and so lord we need the spirit to come and to renew us afresh this morning to see not what rod omis has to say but god to experience and understand the knowledge of, of truth here that your spirit gives us. So, Lord, we, we open, we have opened your word. And now as we dig a little deeper, God, may you be glorified in this. May we be approved workmen who are, need not be ashamed by how we handle this truth this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the, the two parables that we just read through, you guys have heard before. Um, especially the one about uh, the talents. Um, but these two parables are, are Jesus' way of continuing the discussion from the end of, t- of chapter 24. They're kind of extensions of what he was saying there. He is, Jesus is teaching how and why his followers should be prepared at his coming. This is what chapter 25 is talking through. Now, the first parable is about uh, the, the virgins and the wedding. There we go. We got the fans on now. Okay. Um, but the weddings in Jesus' day looked quite a bit different than they look today. We're not going to go into all of that. We don't know exactly what they looked like. But today, the, the trend is to plan your weddings in expensive locations, uh, spending lots of money. Maybe not quite so in the last five years or so, but I know when Nikki and I got married almost 15 years ago, the traditional wedding in the church with the big, you know, reception, every, you know, paying 20 bucks a plate, all of that stuff, that's what we did. And we spent a lot of money, or should I say her mom spent a lot of money. 
on, on that wedding. Um, in, in, in Jesus' day, oftentimes they would gather at one of the family's homes and they would get married right there. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a day of, of festivities. They just, they, they put it all out there, but it wasn't quite the same as it was that kind of how we do weddings today. We know it included a big party, a wedding feast, because it's talked about here in Jesus' parable. And I want to be clear about something, because as I was researching and reading, um, I just want to be clear. Jesus, uh, the groom, is not coming to marry all ten virgins, okay? In fact, um, before we get too far into this, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, I want us to remember the purpose of parables, okay? Because that's what this is. Um, parables are stories that teach a lesson, right? Uh, in essence, they're imaginary, but they're used to teach a specific idea. In fact, I would, I would say that parables are designed to communicate one main point, so one main overarching theme, and it just so happens that our two today kind of point at the same thing. It's been said of parables that they are verbal pictures to make a point, but not every brushstroke in the picture is designed to make a separate point. Okay, that just kind of helps us understand. So what is the main point here? It's simple. It's what the the, the wedding feast, it's what the the talent parable both point to. It's the song that we just listened to. Be ready. Simple. Jesus, in the last chapter, 24, verse 44, just came right out and said this, didn't he? He says, you must be ready. This is not a surprise to his disciples. It should not be a surprise to us. And here, he starts to talk about, okay, how do we get ready? Well, for starters, um, we need kind of some background on things. Okay, remember, Matthew was written in Greek, and so we, we need to understand the word that is used here as virgins. We should probably understand it's bridesmaids, okay? Bridesmaids. Jewish culture, Jewish history, they help us understand that it was, it was customary, and you see this played out in our parable today. It was customary for the bridesmaids to wait, often at the same location with the bride. The bride was probably in a separate room waiting for the groom. The bridesmaids would wait, and when the wedding party, the bridegroom and the, the other guys with him would come, they would run out and meet him and escort him in to see his bride and to be married and kind of start the wedding marriage festivities. In the parable, we're told that the groom is delayed, right? This should hearken us back to the last chapter Chapter 24, this is used in there. Uh, there's no surprise here. Um, and this, I just want to bring out this point again. Expectant waiting is built into the lives of believers. Guys, we have to get okay with waiting. Expectant waiting is built into the lives of believers. Um, again, we discussed this at length last week. I don't want to go into all of that, but I want us to understand and be reminded of this concept Jesus is telling his followers ahead of time, before he's even gone here, he's telling them ahead of time, there's going to be a delay between his original coming when he was there with them and when he comes back. There's going to be a delay. And so this parable points to Jesus' earthly coming as the engagement 
between him and his bride and the second coming as his wedding day. Okay, so make those connections with me this morning. The engagement between him and his bride and then the, the coming wedding day. His bride is the church. We know that. Um, the church are called out ones. They are set apart for the purposes of God. It was Christ, as if Christ was coming to earth and he was saying, you are mine. He's calling out his bride. He's calling out his people. He's saying, you are mine and you don't belong to anyone else. This is what a husband does. This is what a wife does with one another at their wedding day. You are mine and no one else's. And this is what Christ did when he came to earth. He loves his bride, we know from Ephesians 5, he loves his bride so much, more than himself, that he would give himself up. He laid his life down for his bride so that she might be presented spotless, without wrinkle, without blemish. Jesus' second coming is the wedding day with the celebration of the wedding feast happening in glory. So brothers and sisters, I want to point out here that we are living in the time between the engagement and the wedding day. Are you with me? Between the engagement and the wedding day. So in this parable, he's comparing his second coming with the bridegroom coming at night. Right? So the groom in this story is Jesus coming back at a time when he was unexpected. The bridesmaids did not know when the groom was going to come. So we read in the text that five were were wise and five were foolish. Five of them were prepared and five of them weren't. The five that were prepared brought extra oil for their lamps. They didn't know when he was coming, but they were prepared. The five that were foolish took no thought to be ready with extra oil. So the point, I think, is this. Watch out so that you aren't caught off guard like that, right? The five who were prepared went in to join the wedding party at the marriage feast, but the five who weren't prepared were not allowed in. Now, I want to, I want to notice us to notice something here just for a minute. I actually want us to notice the similarities between these two groups of bridesmaids for a second, okay? All of the bridesmaids were very excited. They knew the groom was coming. They just didn't know when. They all had a lamp with oil in it. They all fell asleep, but they all jumped into action when the cry was heard that the bridegroom was here. Okay? So let me just say this to all of you out there who are caring for your kids all day long, Um, everybody working overtime to provide for your family, all you grandparents who are sacrificing your time to stay invested in the lives of your kids and grandkids, all you workers for the kingdom, giving of yourself for the sake of Christ, sleeping is not a negative thing here. Okay? If you feel worn out and exhausted, sleeping is not a negative thing in this text. In fact, that wasn't the problem. Even the wise bridesmaids fell asleep. So you have my permission to go take a nap. Not right now. Oh, man. Yes, my dear. You can take a nap. The fact that this, that this point, uh, the fact that this, um, that sleep, they all slept, um, is pointed out here. I think it signifies just the normal, everyday, day-to-day stuff that we do while we wait, right? We wake up, 
God willing, we go to sleep. Maybe not as long as we would like, but this is the normal ebb and flow of day-to-day life. What God expects of us in this period between the time of the, the engagement and the time of the, the marriage is exactly what we talked about last week. And it's this, while you wait for Christ's coming, God's will for your life is to be a productive member of the body, to be a productive member of his body. So in verse 13 of Matthew 25, Jesus says, watch. He says, watch. Now, the only difference between the five wise and five foolish was how they were watching. Now, true, they both, everyone fell asleep, okay? Um, but the five wise bridesmaids, I would contend, were watching the way that they were supposed to. Even though they slept, they were aware of their job as bridesmaids. Their job was going to be to run out and meet the groom, to welcome him in, to bring him back, to introduce him to the bride. And that was their job. And they, the wise ones knew that they couldn't do that if they couldn't see, if they didn't have light. And so they came prepared. Now think about this too. Even the foolish bridesmaids, here's one last similarity. The foolish bridesmaids, the wise bridesmaids, I think they all liked their job. Think about that. I think they all really liked the job of being a bridesmaids. They liked being a lamp carrier. They liked carrying that lamp with them. They enjoyed having a lamp, but the foolish ones paid no attention to its emptiness. And there's the difference. They were foolish because they thought that simply having a lamp was enough. But they lacked oil for the lamp And they were, in the end, turned away from the wedding feast. If you haven't made the connection yet, let me put it this way. Remember, the wedding feast is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus used this analogy already back in Matthew 22, and it's the same kind of principle here. So let me just visit the application of this first parable for a second. And this 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 is a this is a hard blow in a sense, um, but I think it need we need to think through this. I think many people today are quite content to carry around the lamp of religion, but pay no attention to its emptiness. Right? Lots of people say they're religious. Lots of people say they love they love God, and yet their lamps are almost dry. How many people have responded to an invitation? How many people have made a confession, shown some emotion, and then walk away from their faith as if they never had any to begin with? Well, I would say that the most likely reason that they do that is because they didn't actually have faith to begin with. Jesus referred to this type of person in Matthew 13 when he talked about the seed being cast on specific kinds of soil, in particular, the rocky ground. Remember this? He said that the the farmer, the sower, throws the seed on the rocky ground, and what happens? It comes up quickly. It immediately springs up, but it doesn't have depth of soil, and it was burnt by the sun and withered away because it had no real root. The bridesmaids in Jesus' parable were like this too. They were unprepared to persevere until the groom arrived. 
All ten bridesmaids responded to the invitation to be a part of the celebration, and all ten claimed to be part of the bridal party, didn't they? But not all ten got to celebrate. They'd all been invited. They all responded, even with excitement, but some were turned away. Does this scenario sound familiar? Does it ring any bells? I think it should if you've been a Christian for a while. Jesus talked about this back in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. In fact, turn back there with me just for a moment. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Seven verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father, of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus uses identical language. In Matthew 7 and in Matthew 25. So we need to take note here. In both examples, people pleaded with the Master, with the Lord, saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I, can't I, am I not? And in both situations, they're answered with this phrase, I don't know you. What heart-wrenching accounts. What What a horrible idea to ponder. And yet, we need to look inward as we read these accounts and ask ourselves this question, does this describe me? Am I carrying around a lamp that is is dry? Do I know? And if I know, do I care? If we're convicted when asking this question, because Christ is in you, Great. If the Spirit is stirring in your heart saying, man, you need to make some changes today, that is fantastic because there's good news. God can work with a broken heart. Psalm 51 verse 17 says this explicit thing. He says, God will not despise a broken and repentant heart. He just won't do it. So if you're convicted over your sin because the Spirit is moving in you because Christ owns you, fantastic yield submit to him today but if you're indifferent if you care nothing about this question if you do not want to bother with looking inwardly and asking if this is true of you it's my prayer today that god will grant you kindness and grant you repentance and make you alive together with christ today god delights in the salvation of every person who comes to him and if you come in faith truly he will not turn you away praise god We see from these parables that some people look like followers of Jesus. They may have responded to an invitation. They may have made a confession. They may have even shown emotion in those things. But the truth is, not all of them are are trusting Christ today. That's the question. Are you trusting Christ today? Are you trusting Him at this moment for your salvation? In the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the trial, is all of your hope in Christ alone. I pray that it is. Because what happened 20 years ago, what happened 5 years ago, what happened 3 weeks ago, is important to understand. But where is Christ reigning in your life today? 
Is he reigning in your life today? It's one thing to say, yes, I want to follow you, and then two weeks later pick up our own you know, crown, put it back on and sit on the throne of our own life and care nothing for Christ. But it's another thing to say, yes, I want to follow you and not pick up that crown again. So Jesus moves into the, par- the parable of the talents now. Um, this, this parable I think is interesting because it goes beyond just watching and waiting and deals again with what we're supposed to be doing while we wait. Now there are, there are, uh, lots of, of different applications to this text that we're not going to get into, be able to get into all of them today. Um, what we're talking through now is not exhausting this text, but I do want to bring out some points. I think this parable initially forces us to deal with this question, what am I doing with what God has given me? What am I doing with what God has given me? And uh, obviously, as the text goes through, um, finances are involved in that, but it's not exclusive to that. What is God? What are you doing with what God has given you in the realm of your time, your entertainment time? Um, finances was one. What about with your friendships, with your family, with your kids? Are you honoring God with these things? Now, just so we're on the same page here, as we've read through this text, Jesus is the master and we are the servants. Okay, we are stewards. I think that's a good word to use. We are stewards of everything God has given us. Everything. Nothing that you own is truly yours. Now, when I say that, how does that make you feel? Now, don't answer that. That's a silly question in reality to ask. Um, but it, it brings out in us some emotions, some things. Some of us, it, we kind of bristle. And wait a second, I worked hard for this. I put in 65 hours at work this week with overtime to make this money, to have this stuff. This belongs to me. I have a right to this. The thing in our culture today, in fact, it was on the top of a Dr. Pepper can um, I saw the other day is you deserve it. You deserve this is what it said. You deserve this. Right? That, but that's when we say nothing that is yours is really yours. Our culture says, uh-uh, that's not okay. It's mine. And I deserve all kinds of other stuff too, whether you've worked really hard for it or not. That's not the same economy that scripture points out. Now, I haven't really put a plug in for this much, but our Wednesday night uh, finance course has been really helpful in a lot of different levels. If you are um, available on Wednesdays, I'd encourage you to be here, um, especially young couples who are just kind of getting their feet under them um, with finances. I mean, come join us. It's not too late. Every single week you come, you'll be encouraged and you'll be challenged in specifically your finances. But also we've talked about the idea of our time and our, and our kids and it, it's helped us understand that we're simply managing these things. We are God's money managers, but we're also managing the kids that he's given us. They belong to God, not you and I. If we're honest, most of us, many of us maybe, we don't really manage these things all that well sometimes. And as the text points out, there are consequences when we don't handle things properly when we mishandle things that belong to God. Thankfully, God has not left us alone to figure out how to do this right. He has given us 
ample evidence in his word on how to do this. And those are the kinds of things that we explore on Wednesday evenings at the finance class. Um, here's something else that I think we need to keep in mind that you've heard before. Um, but it's this. God doesn't need your money. Okay? I'm just going to say it again. God doesn't need your money. But what you do with your money is a gauge of where your heart truly is. That's as convicting to me as it is to you, brothers and sisters. It's true. We know because Jesus has already said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, you'll make time for. Whatever you treasure, you'll make energy to do, won't you? Same for me. In our discussion about giving this past Wednesday, um, we talked about giving as an act of worship. And, uh, and one of our brothers who were there put it really simply. He just said, he just said this. It's not about how much you give. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. In fact, I think Randy Alcorn says that in the treasure principle. God wants your heart. Whether you can give a little or whether you can give a lot, God is less concerned about the number of dollars that you put in the offering plate and much more concerned about the motivation for whatever you put in there. He wants your heart, not your money. He doesn't need it. He owns, as Jason already prayed today, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The biggest need that you can think of in your life, God has every bit of power to address immediately. But God's ways are not our ways. He wants your heart. And what you do with what you have indicates what kind of hold God has on you or not. There's nowhere to hide from this parable. And one overarching, overwhelming truth shines through, one application that I want to point out. When we work diligently, and maximize our resources, we honor our master. When we work hard and are responsible with what he's given us, we honor our master. We honor the Lord. But this isn't just a cold, a sterile master servant or employee, employer and setup. Okay. Though the master asks about the profits earned when he comes back, it's not just about the bottom line. And I'm afraid if we're not careful, we can read this parable that way and fall into this works-based relationship with God that was never intended and will never fulfill us and will always be dull. It wasn't the amount of money earned that pleased the master. His focus was on how they handled what they were given. The primary problem in this principle is the way that the third servant viewed the master. And when we went through the, the treasure principle a couple summers ago, Jason was right and good to point this out. He helped us understand this better. The servant viewed the master as hard and difficult. I mean, he says that. I, I, I know you're a difficult person. You reap where you've not sown, all of these things. He saw him as hard and difficult, not helpful and loving. And that was the shift that needed to take place. We know that he wasn't like this because look at verse 15 of Matthew 25. What happens? Well, he gives them gifts according to their ability. He, his expectations were high for these men, um, but not unreasonably so. They were in proportion to their ability. So think about it this way. 
Okay? If an art teacher, does anyone teach art here? We've got some artists in the room, but if, if an art teacher um, gives a five-year-old a very extremely detailed coloring sheet with 300 different shades and colors of colored pencils, there's a very good chance that they're going to get back um, a paper with lots of coloring outside the lines and probably only a handful of colors used, right? Now, is that the five-year-old's fault? Um, I don't think so. And there's a chance in that scenario, were it to happen that way, that they're probably going to frustrate that five-year-old with uh, the process. So to help them succeed, instead, they should be given fewer colored pencils, probably less options, and a less detailed coloring page so that they can do well and so the teacher can be proud of them and they can know that they've done something well. Right? It's in proportion to their ability. But if the teacher gave that really detailed coloring sheet to a 20-year-old art student with the 300 colored pencils, they would probably get back a real piece of art. They'd probably get back something amazing because the 20-year-old had the ability and the capability to handle those tools responsibly, to handle them well. The five-year-old does well with what they're given, and the 20-year-old would do well with what they're given, and both could be celebrated as a success in that scenario. The art teacher then would recognize their abilities, set them up to succeed, and in turn would actually be a good teacher, I would think. So the key here, tying this back into the parable of the talents, the key here is understanding the relationship between the master and the servants, between the art teacher and the students. The first two servants were faithful with what they were given. And what does the text say? This is, this is beautiful. It says that they were welcomed into the joy of their master. They weren't given a large sum of money. They were welcomed into the joy of their master. An uncaring master wouldn't do this much for them. He would expect his servants to do this just as part of their regular work and would offer no additional benefits. But there was a deeper relationship here. He praised them saying, well done. I think you can read excitement into the voice there of the master. You can, you can read joy into there because then he welcomes those faithful servants into his joy. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture. He praised them. The, ser- the third servant wasn't condemned for what he did. He was condemned for what he didn't do. There's no joy in reporting to the master for him. There's no intimacy of relationship at all. In fact, he tries to blame the master for his own laziness in verses 24 and 25. He blamed him for his lack of responsibility. How many times do we do the same thing? Apply this to your own heart for a second. How many times do you and I do the same thing? Well, if God had given me a better paying job, I could just do fill in the blank. Well, if God had made me healthier or stronger, then I could just fill in the blank. If God would improve my situation, then what are we doing? We're blaming the master. I think the challenge we face today is not just trusting the Lord's timing, but also trusting his ways. He brings things about in ways that we would never plan ourselves. Talk to anyone who has suffered and they will tell you that. 
They would not ask for that kind of a thing. But God remains faithful in those things. So we have to ask ourselves today, do I trust that God has a plan for me right now in the place that I'm in? Do I trust that? Do I believe that God can still use me despite my small bank account or despite my illness? Can I still have joy right here in the middle of my difficulty? See, this parable ends the way the last two did with the wicked servant being turned away. The bridegrooms were turned away. This is what I want us to think about as we close today. All the way back to the kids' song that we listened to. Am I ready? Are you ready? Are we being ready? That's the overarching point of these parables, right? The bridesmaids were not ready for the groom's return. The wicked servant was not ready for the master to return. But we know that the king is coming back. He's on his way. Are you ready? Is your relationship with God only a verbal confession or only an emotional display? Or is there real joy there? Is there real assurance there? If there's not those things, please come grab me after the service. Talk with one of our elders. Talk with a trusted individual here at church. We want to talk with you some more about how you can know, about how you can have the joy of the master in the situation that your life is in right now. What are you doing today with what God has entrusted to you, with your finances, with your kids, with your time, with your stuff, with your abilities? This is not just kind of an earn your keep kind of an attitude while we wait for Christ. Okay? I just want us to be clear in that. This is a demonstration of your love for Christ and and gratitude for what he has given you. That's what this boils down to. Will you be commended for your faithfulness on that day or condemned for your laziness? The call on the Christian today is one of steady faithfulness while we wait for Christ's return. And that's challenging depending on what season of life you're in. But brothers and sisters, look around you. God has given you the church to support, to encourage, to love. And yet, we're not called to sit idly by. He's coming back. And while we wait in hopeful expectation, as we ought to, we have got work to do. So my prayer and the challenge for us moving forward is, are we going to join hands and put them to the plow? Or are we going to find ourselves doing a host of any other things that would much be much easier to do? My prayer, I think your prayer as well, is that we would link arms and we would be a force in our community for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, make this come about. You told us back in chapter 24 that your word will go out and that we will be hated because of it. It's going to happen. Lord, walking with you through this life is always a challenge. And yet, Lord, it's worth it. We want, like, like the first two servants, we want to, be res- to, to hear, to have the response from you, well done. Well done, faithful servant. Lord, but we're not faithful. You know our hearts. 
The joy that we have, though, is that you are. Because your faithfulness is, is not tied to our performance, Lord. It's tied to your character. So as we wait in hopeful expectation, God, I pray that we would put our hands to the plow. Fields are ripe. What would you have us to do with what you've given us this morning? Move our hearts with that as we sing. In Christ's name, amen.